This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt jolly thank you for all of your nice messages and tweets and things about friday's episode uh, the sunday shows part two uh, we're all about david frost and breakfast with frost uh, coming up this week we're going to take a look at on the record uh, the sunday lunchtime political show presented by jonathan dimbleby and then john humphreys as a cracking listen so that's coming up uh, later on this week Today, though, we are following the Russian money as MPs debate another crackdown on uh, dodgy Russian money in the UK. Uh, We'll speak to some of those who know this issue best and ask, is this enough? First, though, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Liberace today. Instead, we've got Times Diplomatic Editor Roger Boys and Deputy Property Editor Carol Lewis. Now, Roger, you've just returned from Poland. Yeah, the Polish-Ukrainian Polish border. Ukrainian yeah, border. Yeah, yeah. Explain what it is like there, having seen it with your own eyes. Well, it's absolutely chaotic, obviously. A million people have entered Poland uh, in the last week. Yeah, And uh, this is a kind of small, um, I wrote, scruffy town, and I got lots of criticism right on, online for that. But it's, it is. It's a bo- typical border town that was, you know, a smuggling town originally. And it's just ill-equipped for this kind of flood of people. They come on the train from Kiev at the moment, but they'll come from other cities probably too. Uh, sometimes it's people who fled one city like Kharkiv to Kiev, and then uh, from Kiev they move to Lviv, and they eventually arrive here at this place. And it's you know, what was the name of the place for minus? Przemysl. There we are. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you asked me that. And, uh, you know, often 30 hours on the way. Uh, the whole of the Polish uh, train system in southern Poland is completely loused up. Yeah, that's because they just can't deal with the volumes of people. Um, you know, uh, Ukrainian mothers and children are sort of whisked away to gymnasiums and, and converted warehouses and uh, waiting for people to take them. Uh, and having to share the hall with um, uh, Kyrgyz people and Tajiks and so on, people who'd fled the Afghan war to Ukraine and now fleeing from Ukraine to to the West. So it's it's a complete 
it's a complete geopolitical mess, yeah. But they're handling it incredibly well. Well, I was going to ask that. Explain what. So, what happens when people do arrive? In it, and who is it? Is it local? Local authorities, national authorities, the army, who's involved in sort of trying to help them on that first stage? Well, there are quite a few soldiers around, uh, but it's mainly volunteers. Um, they've got, in, just in this little railway station alone, they've got 12,000 volunteers. Wow. And what's happened is it's become a social media thing. And if we could do the same in Britain, I'd be really proud uh, of them. There are WhatsApp groups, uh, you know, people are offering rooms in their houses, Across Poland, uh, some quite a lot of them are driving down to this little place, um, and, and quite a lot are coming with big. You know, they stand with big placards. Uh, but it's not just poles. It's you know, you get Berlin, for example. There are people holding up signs saying, uh, "We've got room for forty people." Uh, uh, you know, to Berlin, and they've they've hired a bus, and the bus then takes them. Um, the issue. Partly is um, uh, they're so desperate to clear it because there's going to be more coming. Yeah, there's probably, I, I, you know, the guess is another half a million. Um, uh, that there's no filtering at all. So there's no COVID testing at all, um, which, you know, is all right with us. But, you know, when you're living cramped together and, and sleeping on floors, then there's quite a lot of stuff going on. And especially when you're coming from different parts of a country. Um and, um, uh, and well, we just don't know. And people just lose, you know, they just lose track. And, uh, and there is this thing, there's, you know, all the normal humanitarian uh, criteria, that's to say, make sure that um, some kind of pervert doesn't take, take, you know, a couple of Ukrainian girls or something and on the on the pretense of giving them a room that doesn't really exist yeah there's no real due diligence on any of this because the numbers are so huge yeah, yeah, yeah. so you have to trust so the whole thing is about trust and i haven't seen this kind of spirit since 1980 in poland solidarity you know when people were helping each other out a lot um uh it always used to be a place where you could have a good argument you know <laughs> and and now it's not it's good Carl, you, you sort of see those pictures a million people on the move from Ukraine, and so far Britain has offered visas know, to 50 people. I was just people. thinking that, actually. It makes you feel a, a little ashamed, doesn't it? No-one can stand there with a billboard saying London because they'll have to fill in you know, 10,000 forms and then get told to go to Belgium or something. Do you think the, the, the government <laughs> here is getting it wrong? The, 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 it feels like they're sort of still fighting the vote-leave thing of you can't be too tough on immigration and people want the borders closed. I'm not sure if that's where the public mood is. I'm not sure it is either. I mean, we have heard, um, I think it was Rob who said yesterday, well, if we just let everyone in, then we'll lose public support. I'm not sh sure that's true, to be honest. I think there's a lot of public support, as we've seen with the um, money that's been raised, I mean, incredible amount of money that's been raised. Um, I think there is a lot of public sympathy. There's a lot of people driving over to Poland, yeah. to places where, you know, like Roger was with supplies as mm. well. I think. Is, that, is that helpful, Roger? I mean, I was sort of reading again over the weekend, I mean, even somebody from where I live, sort of loading up a van. And go, is that useful, Brits turning up with vanfuls of stuff in Poland? Um, well, they're getting stuff. They're getting lots of free food, and it's, it's partly subsidised by the government, and it's partly from local charities, and it's partly, you know, international relief yeah. committees and so on. So I'm not sure that a van full of baked beans is going to really 
change their lot. But I tell you what's missing if you go through these halls with all these people is that no one is really um, taking into account that they may all or a lot of them have uh, PTSD, you know, uh, after all that war damage, war bombing, you know, the, the, some of the kids are, are real messes and no one, because of the sheer numbers of it. So I could imagine, you know, that you could send a few shrinks over for a start, you know. I mean, you could, you know, there are yeah. sort of targeted assistance that one could do, uh, but you just have to think it through and talk to the people on the ground. And then uh, back here in London today, uh, Carol, the House of Commons debating the economic crime bill. Uh, they're hopefully going to get through it, the whole thing today to try and sort of speed it up. What do you make of it? The amount of, I mean, you know, as the deputy property editor, you know all about Russian money floating around. Is this enough to try and stem that that tide of the influence of Putin's mates in in mm. uh, London? <laughs> this is part one. Yeah, there is part two. Second instalment coming later in the year. Um, just to give a little bit of background, so you can kind of see the scale of what this bill is trying to cover. Um, we, I mean, Transparency International estimates there's 1.5 billion worth of property in London that's directly uh, linked to corruption in Russia or to the Kremlin. That's direct links. There's something like 100,000 billion rinsed through the capital every year of illicit money. So we're just going for that pot of money. Now, the problem with that pot of money is 55% of it is owned in companies. Um, now, that is the big problem because it's not just a company that's Matt Chorley Inc. You will have bought it off Roger, who's another dodgy oligarch. Mm. You'd have transferred the shares over. You'll have then put it in a shell company and a shell company like Russian Dolls all the way to the British Virgin Islands. Now what they're trying to do with the economic crime bill, which, by the way, has been around since 2016 and shelved and delayed and shelved and delayed and only just brushed off now with the war, is they're saying, right, we need to register, public register, of all the beneficial owners. Now, beneficial owner is someone who owns 25% or more, has a major uh, influence on that company. As they want this public register, it's not going to be as easy, I think, as they think, because you could get all the way to the British Virgin Islands and find out there isn't a beneficial owner. There's something called nominee agreements where you get someone else to put their name on it. You could divvy up the shares so that there's no one overall owner. There's lots of ways around it. They originally wanted to give um, a transition period of 18 months. Well, I can tell you already, there's a lot of people trying to offload properties, big properties, <laughs> quick as they can in London. But, I mean, that's, that's entirely, you know, in the same way, if they said that my car was going to be banned in 18 months, I'd probably try and sell it. That's not yes. a, that's an entirely yeah. human reaction. So an amendment was announced on Friday to cut that to six months. Keir Salman said today, come on, 28 days. They also originally said well, the fine for not doing this will be £500 a day. And this is like Dr. Evil going, £500. Billionaires are not going to be frightened by that. So they've upped it to 2500 a day, which they hope might squeeze Even, them a little oh, bit more. Oh, come on. That's just small ch- That's a meal out for them, isn't it's it? It's a small change, isn't it? So, so we've, we've, we've got that. Um, and as I say, there are faults with it. The second half of the bill is about unexplained wealth orders which we've had since 2018, we barely use. I think we've tried to use them four times. It's never quite worked because, guess what? It's, it takes longer, it costs more money to try and figure out where people's wealth comes from. So they're going to make a number of changes on this. At the moment, if you have a house that they think you can't afford 
from your income, then they can apply to investigate it. They're going to add if they think your income is corrupt to that. They are then going to try and widen the net so that they bring directors of companies in. So they're trying to get as many people along the way, the enablers, as well as just the one owner at the end. They're also going to try and have these freezing orders, which will give them an extra 126 days to investigate. And um, they're going to try and limit the legal costs because the costs are spiralling. So there are all those amendments, but whether they actually will have the teeth or they'll just tie us up in courts, I don't know. The other thing is you need, at the end of the day, to have the resources. We need the people in... in to investigate it and chase it down. And, yeah, yeah. and then ultimately to enforce it. And even if that means going to court and it getting tied up in expensive legal yes. things. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea that we can seize a Russian oligarch's house in Highgate and give it to Ukrainian refugees, which I think was Rob's uh, suggestion, is not going to happen any day soon. At the moment, you can only seize someone's property without compensation if they're proven to have bought it with the proceeds of crime. So if you commit a burglary and then you're done for that burglary and they can trace the money to you buying your house um, in in wherever in Kensington, yeah. then they can seize it without compensation. Yeah. They can't do that unless they go through all the process at the moment. So, Just, um, Carol, for the last two years, I've been asking you why were house prices soaring during <laughs> the pandemic when the economy seemed to be collapsing. Now we've got, well, we've, we've still got the economic problems from the, the pandemic. We've now got the outbreak of war in Europe, soaring gas and uh, gas and oil prices. Uh, we've got it, tax rises coming down the road. Energy bills are soaring. <laughs> House prices have just gone up by how much? Ten point eight percent in the last year. What the hell's year. going on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I come I come here on a regular basis for the last two years and I say house prices have gone up. Yeah, but Matt, they're going to flatline very, very soon. soon. Really very soon, soon. Cal. Really <laughs> yes. soon, Cal. Cost of living is going up. Inflation is predicted to be. I think it's five point five at the moment. It's predicted to be eight point five um, next month, as you say, with national insurance increases and energy going through the roof. It, it really does have to slow at some point, doesn't it? This is crazy. It is Absolutely crazy. crazy. Um, before I let you go, Roger, did you see, you might not have done, because I think this might be when you were away, that the Times Archive dug out a column that you wrote in 2004. Oh, yeah, I saw it on Twitter, yeah. Never yeah. trust a former Soviet agent, especially if he supplies your gas. You had it all nailed back then in, 20, yeah, in 2004. Yeah, yeah. I know, that's you, what I'm paid for. <laughs> yeah. It is an extraordinary, it is an extraordinary uh, uh, piece. Mr Putin's management of Russia's oil and gas reserves shows how misguided it is to give the Kremlin the benefit benefit of the doubt and that was back in 2000 it's all about how it was a mistake for germany germany in particular but others as well to rely on this guy for our gas supplies yeah and can i say it's just a really good moment to have a pay rise um, <laughs> <laughs> sure. after all the mps are getting I'm one sure the bosses are listening i'm sure the bo- and then you'll be able to buy yourself a nice oligarch's house in london yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah, a few yeah. going cheap yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 not that cheap they keep going up by 10 percent Carol Lewis and Roger Boys there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Follow the Russian Money. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. It's been a long time coming, but today Parliament will debate the Economic Crime Bill. Designed to crack down on the flow of dirty money to the UK from Russian oligarchs with links to Vladimir Putin. The National Crime Agency estimates £100 billion is laundered through the UK every year. The UK has already announced it wants to sanction 100 individuals and entities connected to the Kremlin, but lags behind the EU on the scope and severity of the sanctions. Well, Oliver uh, Bullo is the author of Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, which is out this week. In his book, Oliver explains how the UK became such a hub for dirty Russian money and joins me now. Hi, Oliver. Hello. Good morning. Let, let's start at the beginning, if you like. At what point uh, did this start becoming a thing? Or is it just does it go back sort of hundreds of years of, of London as a trading centre? When did re- re- Britain become... Uh, as you describe it, the butler to the world? It goes back to the 1950s, really, at the end of the empire. You know, the city of London had been the economic engine of the British Empire and, and was kept very busy you know, funding cargoes to India and Australia and so on. But as that sort of fell away, um, it needed to find something else to do. And you know, Britain had been the biggest bully on the block, so it knew a lot about the bullying business, um, but wasn't able to afford to do it itself anymore. So it just essentially hired out its skills to other people. Um, and became the butler rather than the bully. And, you know, obviously after 1991, when a communism collapsed, a lot of, well, actually not a lot, a very small number of Russians became extraordinarily wealthy. They wanted somewhere to put their money. They didn't trust the, the Russian courts to, to look after their money if they fell out with the government. So they a, lo- a lot of them brought their money here and they bought up, you know, lovely bits of real estate in the home counties or in West London or fine art or, or, or other you know, valuable objects. And and essentially, that's what we're reckoning with now, the fact that we've had this for 30 years, pretty much an entirely open door to Russian money. And suddenly we realised that perhaps that wasn't a very good idea. Um, it, what, I suppose there's nothing wrong in essentially, you know, being an internationally open, global facing city where people around the world want to come in and do business and live and, and so on. Is it just that we weren't very good at picking separating good money from bad or were we were we just turning a blind eye to bad bad money or were we actively encouraging it well back in i mean it begins back in the 1950s and 60s really with this you know how, what was london's niche well, well essentially at the time the the financial capital of the world was new york what could london do to steal business from new york and and we did that by by regulating less than them um, we, we we did fewer checks. We 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 charged less. We allowed money to move in ways the Americans didn't, and and that's essentially re- remained the case to this day. You know, London's niche remains the place where the stuff that's too dodgy for New York or other places happens. And and you know there was dirty money in in New York as well in the immediate years after 1991. But you know after some pretty uh, serious investigations by prosecutors over there and some and some. Uh, people being jailed, that more or less came to a halt. Similarly, there were even investigations in Switzerland and, and Switzerland became a bit less popular for Russian money at, around the late 1990s as well. But there was no, no equivalent here. 
you know, even after Alexander Litvinenko was murdered with polonium-210, the most deadly substance probably that there is, mm. um, in 2006, the, you know, David Cameron was still going out to, to Moscow when he became prime minister to, to prospect for, for business. You know, Ken Livingstone, was, when he was mayor of London, was setting up a, um, an office dedicated to bringing London business, uh, Russian business to London. And you probably remember when Boris Johnson was mayor, he said, I think, you know, that the, London is the natural habitat for billionaires, just like the forests of Sumatra are the natural habitat for orangutans. You know, there's been this essentially cross-party desire to bring as much money as possible to London, whatever the cost and whether there's blood on it or not. And in terms of the Russian money, do you think it was part of a long-term strategy by Russia, by Putin and his uh, cronies to to gain influence in Britain and the West? What, was it but was it essentially an entirely an economic thing, cleaning the money, uh, you know, gaining a foothold? Or was, was there a deliberate uh, attempt to, as some suspect, influence British politics, British society? There have been some efforts to to buy influence here, but but I think they've been quite small scale and not that successful because they've been picked up by journalists quite early on and have become embarrassing. That's not to say individual British politicians haven't been very helpful to the Russians. Members of the House of Lords have been on the board of you know major oligarch owned companies, um, which has been you know helpful expertise and also a bit of you know helpful international cred for people who who perhaps have a bit of a reputation problem. But more <coughs> more broadly. It's not really about oligarchs wanting to buy influence. It's more about trying to just get their money out of the reach of the Russian courts. You know, they, they're, they're always hedging their bets. They know very well that other oligarchs have fallen from favour and have had their business empires taken away from them. And so they want to, you know, it's just insurance. They want to make sure they can get a decent amount of their wealth offshore. And the amount of wealth, you know, Russian oligarchs have got offshore is truly huge. I mean, it's you know, perhaps half of all the household wealth in Russia is, or Russian-owned household wealth rather, is outside Russia. It's a colossal amount of money, and but that money is hidden very well. I mean, these are wealthy people; they can afford very good lawyers, the best that London has to offer, um, and you know, and ours are the best in the world. And so, you know, they're hidden behind multiple shell companies, and trusts, and havens, and and that in a way gets us to today's economic crime bill. And some of the things that this bill is supposed to be doing is is to trying to unpick some of those uh, protections that our lawyers have been able to create around this wealth. Well, I was going to ask you about that. What what do you, what do you make of the bill uh, as it goes in front of MPs today? And I know the government and the opposition are putting forward amendments to toughen it up. Is it going to address uh, the the sort of issues we've been talking about? Well, look, one of the issues that has been uh, you know a real problem for a long time is it's been so easy to own property offshore in the UK. You know, so almost ninety thousand properties in England and Wales are owned via offshore companies. Unlike um, normal property, that means that the uh, the owner doesn't have to declare their name. You can just say it's owned by a company in the British Virgin Islands or the Seychelles or wherever. So it's good that the government is doing something about that. The problem is that this legislation has exactly the same flaws as our company's house legislation does, which is that no one checks the information that you provide. So if you own your, your property via a shell company in the Seychelles and you say the real owner is someone totally fictitious or you're wife or your daughter or your cousin or whoever that that information isn't checked by anyone so it it won't actually i mean it sounds extraordinary to say it but but it won't actually make any difference um and you know and there are other loopholes as well if if (coughs) if an oligarch wishes to obey the 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 letter of the law and not just willfully break it even though they may as well break it um you know if you're if you own less than 20 percent of the company you don't have to declare who you are either so you can essentially just say that six different people own this company 
the five of them are just working for you, but you can claim that they six of them own it, then you don't have to declare your identity either. Um, it is a you know it's good that they're doing something. I'm glad they're doing something. It is long overdue. This is this has been promised in the past, but but it is very disappointing that the flaws that our own company registry already has will be replicated in this new registry, particularly since. In the, it, the, those very flaws have been debated in Parliament and recognised by politicians for, for some years now. And they'll be debated again uh, later on, all over again. Uh, it's really good to speak to you, Oliver. Oliver Burlow is the author of Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, which is out this week. Well, earlier I spoke to John Penrose, he's a Conservative MP. He's also the government's anti-corruption czar. And I started off by asking him how much of the dirty money in the UK is Russian? Uh, we don't know, is the simple answer. I mean, I wish we did, but because the all the oligarchs and the kleptocrats and the crime lords and the drug barons and all these things from around the world, because they have such so much money to employ top quality lawyers, they're really good at hiding their identity behind shell companies and all these other things. So we don't know. And one of the things that the Economic Crime Bill will do today and is to rip away those veils. And so we will be able to see who owns what. Um, and of course, you can't sanction an oligarch's cash unless you know where the cash is. This will mean that we can follow the money, we can find where it is, and we can freeze it before they can whip it away. Uh, and what will the bill going through Parliament today do, do you think, to address that problem? It'll make a huge difference is the answer. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there will be other things that we'll need to do in future, but Britain was one of the first countries in the world to get this idea and introduce rules to be able to follow the money, to be able to find out who owns what. Um, but inevitably, because we were one of the first countries in the world, um, there were some loopholes which people didn't discover till later. And this bill plugs those loopholes and it will mean that basically, um, if you are an oligarch or a crime lord with money stashed in London, you won't be able to hide it anymore We'll know where it is, we'll know where you are, um, and we'll be able to grab it, sanction it, and stop it. Why has it taken Russia invading Ukraine for this to happen? Well, the fair question. I mean, it, it's a, a number of us, myself included, have been asking for these loopholes to be plugged for a couple of years now. And, you know, all right, we, we have had a few other things going on, like Brexit um, and like the pandemic. So I, I, guess, I guess everyone can understand why there have been other things that are more urgent but even though those other things were more urgent in the past, this is really important too. So um, I, I think you know it's a, it's a tragedy that it's taken something like Ukraine to shove it to the top of the political agenda. But it is something that absolutely has to be done. It's it's vital and it's important. And I'm, I'm glad, for whatever reason, that we are at least getting it done now. You are the government's anti-corruption czar. Is there something corrupt about the amount of Russian money which has been donated to the Conservative Party? about uh, Evgeny Lebedev being given uh, a peerage after concerns about security were removed. And is that part of why uh, the UK government has been slower than the American government and the EU in sanctioning individuals since the invasion? Oh, no, um, quite the reverse, I think. I mean, I, I think it's hard to argue that we've been um, not in the forefront of the overall response to Russia's invasion, invasion of Ukraine. We've been one of the earliest uh, countries out there with military um, help for the Ukrainians um, and the diplomatic effort to try and build the coalition of democratic countries against Russia. But you are right that the crucial question here is we can't just go around saying that 
all Russians in the UK are somehow dodgy because actually very many of them have fled the Putin regime and have come here for safety and are trying to hide from the Putin regime. And the, the awful case um, of the Skripals being poisoned a couple of years ago shows that there are plenty of them who are you know, on, the, on the side of the good guys, if I can put it that way. And the, the problem is that some of them, we, we hope a minority, but some of them um, are definitely you know, part of Putin's gang, part of Putin's regime. Um, and the crucial thing is that we don't just assume that all Russians are either good or bad. We need to be able to distinguish between them. And that's why this, this uh, bill is so important, because it means that we can follow the money. We can find the ones who are, um, who are, you know, who, who are on Putin's side and we can pick them out from the, from the bigger crowd. But do you understand why some people uh, find it surprising that only now we're looking to try and work out who are the good and the bad? Years after, as you mentioned, the Salisbury poisonings, uh, since Crimea was was annexed, um, you know, there have been so many things down the years that only now are we now worrying about who are the good Russians and who are the bad ones. So, so I, mean, I, think, I think the Prime Minister has said this in Parliament, um, that in retrospect, the entire democratic world was wrong to tolerate and not to rear up in horror way back when uh, when Russia uh, entered the Crimea. Um, it's that kind of um, looking the other way, which I think has given Putin um, hope that this time round he can pull the same trick again. So I, I don't think it's just Britain. I think that the entire developed um, democratic world um, is guilty of this and of going occasionally for a reset for tolerating and accepting these acts of Russian aggression, not just in the Crimea, but in the Donbass, before that, his support for Assad in Syria. Um, and I think that, that this is something which, as a, you know, as, as a sort of democratic civilization, it's not just our country or one or two others, it's, it's you know, a huge chunk of our planet. We have to make sure that this time he understands he has made a huge mistake and this isn't something that's going to be forgiven, forgotten, or otherwise brushed under the carpet, which I'm afraid is something which, in retrospect, we have all been doing, not just Britain, um, in the past. Just one of why I've got you, John Penrose. Um, do you think that the Home Office issuing 50 visas to uh, family members of Ukrainians to come to uh, Britain is uh, a world-leading response to the humanitarian crisis? Uh, no, we, we clearly need to issue um, a whole lot more. And uh, I'm delighted to, that we've announced different uh, you know, programmes of visas. Um, actually, those are very, very sensible in principle, but in principle doesn't get you across the border. So we've got to make sure that it works in practice. Um, I'm expecting that people will be wanting to hear a great deal more from that, about that from the government, from ministers in Parliament probably today, and to say, look, it's great that we are, uh, you know, we know who we're trying to admit. We, we've got all these humanitarian uh, uh, routes into the UK for Ukrainians. Uh, let's see it actually happening. What's stopping that? Well, let's continue our look then at the economic crime bill, which is being debated in the House of Commons uh, later on this afternoon. I'm joined now by Susan Hawley, the executive director of Spotlight on Corruption, a British charity that monitors the UK's role in the intersection of criminality and power in the UK and across the world. Hi, Susan. Hello, good morning. Nice to have you with us. We've also got Neil Shearing. He's Group Chief Economist at Capital Economics. He's going to be giving evidence to the Treasury Select Committee later today on the effectiveness of UK sanctions. Hi, Neil. Good morning. Um, let's start with the sanctions then, Neil. Exactly where are we with uh, who has been sanctioned so far by Britain? And is it as world leading as we are led to believe? 
Well, I think it's important. There's, there's several strands to this. Uh, there are asset freezes that have been imposed on individuals. There are export controls that have restricted the ability uh, of UK, European and US firms to export technology uh, and component parts to, to Russia. Um, and there are financial sanctions too on Russian institutions, in particular the Central Bank of Russia, which is the, the really big deal. This is unprecedented, the sanctions on Russia's Central Bank. Only uh, in the past has the US and, and Europe sanctioned uh, the central banks of Iran, Venezuela and North Korea. So that gives you a sense of the company Russia is now keeping. Uh, in a way, the, 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 from a macroeconomic perspective, from the, from the perspective of the economy, the, the sanctions on individuals, those asset freezes, do not have a big effect on the economy. What really matters is the coordinated action between the UK, Europe and the US, particularly on the financial sector in Russia and on the central bank. And that is going to inflict deep pain and, and indeed is in fact inflicting deep pain on, on Russia. Um, and I suppose there's there's, uh, there's there's that difference, isn't it, between what what is the purpose of it? Is it going to ultimately make any difference to Putin? It feels like we're we're past that point now. But is it going to seriously crack down on those? And just essentially, it's not deterrent anymore. It's punishment. Punish those who've enjoyed for perhaps too long the freedom to make a lot of money from from their alliances with Putin. Exactly. I think that there, there, there are two things happening here. There's the the punishment of individuals and in the the sense that for too long. Uh, this has gone on uh, and uh, we, we're no longer going to put up with this. Um, uh, but then there's also a more general punishment of the Russian economy. And that's what obviously what's affecting ordinary uh, Russian citizens. So we're going to see inflation there um, surge. You think we have an inflation problem in this country Well, it's going to get hit 20 percent, perhaps even more in Russia. The, the rubles lost more than half of its value. The economy, uh, in my best judgment, is going to contract by about 10 percent. Uh, this year. So there is a huge economic hit uh, underway uh, in, to, to Russia's economy. Susan, let's bring you in and talk about this the, the bill, the Economic uh, Crime Bill, part of the British government's full uh, response. This bill's been promised for a long time. Suddenly, uh, it's focused minds a bit and they're going to do the whole thing in a day. Is it fit for purpose? Will it do what the government says it's going to do? And if not, what would you like to see included instead? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be clear about what the purpose is. Uh, are we using this bill to try and crack down on Russian money now, or are we trying to prevent London grad happening again in the future? So um, those are different aims and, and different bits of the bill help with different bits. Uh, the property register, super long overdue piece of legislation that's been sitting on a shelf for you know, for four years in government would allow us to know who owns the £170 billion worth of property that is owned by offshore companies uh, in this country. Um, but, you know, people will have six months uh, to get their, you know, ducks in a row on it. So that's not going to impact now uh, on, on on Putin or or. or you know, the sanctions regime. I think probably more significant on that front are some of the changes that the government are bringing into the sanctions regime, which would allow them to actually put on the list the people who have been on the EU and the US list uh, immediately. Uh, so that's pretty significant because we are seeing kind of concerns that the UK has been a bit slower and out of step than the US or EU. We've had, you know, got 94 less individuals and 17 less entities on our list than our allies. Um, and so, you know, we need to be able to act in, in, in lockstep with them. So I think 
But you have to remember that this bill has been rushed through Parliament, but it's also got to get through the Lords. Um, and originally, the government was saying this might not be on the statute books till May. So I don't know if they can bring that forward. But, you know, a lot can happen between now and May. Is there anything that could happen this afternoon uh, in the House of Commons which would toughen it up? Is there a... Because it, it, we always end up sort of talking about these things in broad terms. Are there amendments to the bill that could be made today, Susan, which you think means it would deliver on some of the tough talk? Uh, I mean, I think that we're definitely seeing an amendment from the backbenchers, which is being led by David Davis, to allow the government to freeze assets before they make designations for the sanctions regime. And that would stop these people being able to move their um, assets out of the UK. That issue of asset flight is really the top of everyone's mind at the moment. Um, I don't know if that will happen. I think very likely the only amendments that will get taken forward are the government's amendments. Uh, some of them are really good about, you know, speeding up and toughening up the sanctions regime, making it less possible for people to spend, you know, bog down the FCDO in months and months of legal wrangles. Um, so I think those could actually make make, make a significant amendment uh, to the sanctions regime and really help. Um, I think on the property register, register, as long as you have a situation where you can say that the ultimate owner of this property is still a company, you are not going to get behind the individuals who are owning that property. And that seems like a monumental loophole that has to be bottomed out. Is the answer to that just to say you can't own a, a residential property as a company? Or, you know, actually other experts say... If you're going to say it's owned by a company, you've got to provide the shareholdings, certificate of the shareholdings, and say who are the natural owners and the people who are benefiting from the property. We've got to have individuals named who are behind this. It's not good enough just to have another company that is often owned by another company that is offshore <laughs> that you cannot get behind. Uh, just finally, Neil Shearing, um, do you think that we are seeing a significant sort of era-defining change in Britain's attitude to dodgy money, dirty money, Russian money, whatever we might call it? Or is this a sort of bump in the road and over time it'll be business as usual? Well, I think it's always difficult to see these what turns out to be an era defining change in real time um uh so uh, i think the jury's still out on that one uh i think there has what has certainly been the case is there's been a perceptible shift and i think there will be an era defining change in our attitude to to russia i think uh our relation economic and financial relationship with russia is going to be very different going forward uh the same goes for europe by the way and i think it's going to have the effect of pushing russia uh, into greater economic and financial isolation. So I think that whether or not it changes our relationship with um, quote unquote dodgy money, I'm not sure, but I think it does fundamentally change our relationship with Russia and it, it, to the extent that it, it pushes Russia further away from, from Europe in an economic sense and perhaps closer towards China. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.